Blog Talk Radio. Ladies and gentlemen of America, I'll tell you right now, as we get ready to deal with some issues tonight, then we continue the conversation as far as collateral damage of injustice. And tonight we deal with cruel treatment of the sick, the dying, and the mentally ill in America's prisons. I'll tell you what, folks, this conversation, though uncomfortable at times because it's troubling that this is happening in America, it is necessary to have the discussion. We're going to take off in that conversation here momentarily. And right now, let me welcome back William Williams. I'll tell you what, one of the AJC radio team has been away for a little while handling some things. He's back tonight. Folks, hang on. We take off right now. And there you have it. I'm Lamont Banks along with Cliff Stewart, Kendrick Barnes, Sapson Riddle, Dennis Merritt. And again, as I just mentioned, the return of our brother William Williams to this set tonight. William, we're glad to have you back, and uh, I'm sure you're anxious to get, get going in this conversation. Yes, I'm glad to be back. Thanks. So what, we, what we're going to do now at this point uh, is understand really clearly why this conversation has to be had. Uh, Kendrick, uh, you gave some pretty good insight last week. Uh, as we talked to those guests last week, sharing uh, some of the things that they have endured, Give me your thoughts as, as, and tell our listeners why the importance is so uh, critical that this, this discussion be going on without question. Well, why I think it's critical is because when you're sentenced, a life sentence, you have right. a time when you're supposed to come out of that prison. So as part of that responsibility is to ensure the health of the inmate, the, the health of this person who is basically protected under the Constitution to serve whatever sentence they're supposed to have and come out healthy. But a lot of times it becomes a cost issue from what I've seen personally is they're trying to cut costs. And you're like not a person anymore. And it's like so if we happen to lose one or two inmates or if we could save a dollar here or there, that just seems to be the mindset of the BOP today. Well, going to be joining us tonight uh, is the Deputy Director of Family Outreach and Storytelling at FAM, Debbie Campbell. She's going to be coming on joining us here momentarily and get involved in this discussion. Um, and I'll tell you what. She's going to be, I guess her work has been really committed uh, regarding people who have been impacted by hard sentencing laws who are both inside and outside of the prison system. And we say that inside and out because the people who are outside that are not behind the wall, but your family members are, those people are equally affected. And I don't think people really understand that. Uh, the cruel treatment, just imagine if your mom or your grandmother or an aunt, an uncle, a brother, a sister is locked up and you were hearing what we are hearing uh, as a result of the cruel treatment. Somebody that's mentally ill behind the wall, number one, that's something that has to change because many of the people don't even know who they are, where they are, what's going on. Why are they incarcerated? That is cruel and unusual treatment. Many of them don't even know what they've done. And that we're locking them up in, by the hundred people. And then when they get behind the wall, the, the mentally ill, they don't, they're not medicated properly. Health, the health care system in the prison system is non-existent. So then you have people that are dying and, and really 
decaying away without treatment or without help. Samson, your thoughts? Well, especially when we start to touch on the the people that are mentally ill, um, have something that is just it's chemically or psychologically off in them. We've even heard it from some of the articles that we read where the guards would just, you know, throw their hands up and say, hey, I'm not paid enough to deal with this. I'm not trained to deal with this. And even the medic- a lot of the medical professionals that they have inside these prisons or county lockups or whatever, they're not trained to deal with somebody that has dementia. They're not trained to, some- to deal with somebody that has PTSD or schizophrenia or any, any number of mental illnesses that can cause them to violent whatsoever. They're just, there's, there's, they're off. There's a mental illness there that needs to be dealt with rather than, as Kendrick said, you're sentencing these people to death. You're, you know, you're damaging them irreparably and their family that's on the outside. No, 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 absolutely right. And we're going to get more into that discussion. Uh, right now, we are very happy to bring on a Deputy Director of uh, Family Outreach and Storytelling at FAM, uh, Deborah, De- excuse me, Debbie Campbell. Uh, and also, I missed this part on her information, uh, uh, working on FAM's Compassionate Release Clearinghouse, and that's to obtain pro bono counsel for federal prisoners in need of compassionate release. And it sounds like a lot of compassion needs to go around. Debbie, how are you tonight? I'm great. How are you? Very, very good. And we're so very happy and honored to have you on our show tonight. And thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule uh, to join us tonight and to get involved in this conversation. And we're very, very pleased and honored again to have you. Why don't you introduce yourself to the folks, and uh, uh, we're going to get into the discussion uh, shortly thereafter. Okay. Well, first of all, thank you for having me. Um, I am Deputy Director of Family Outreach and Storytelling at FAM. I am also a former prisoner who spent over 16 years in federal prisons across the U.S. for my involvement in a 1993 drug conspiracy um, Mm -hmm. as a first-time offender. So once I left prison, I knew that, you know, I couldn't leave it behind. So um, I relocated, and here I am today um, working for FAM in D.C. Well, that's awesome. That's awesome. And and what what we're talking about, Deb, and and, and if I can call you that, uh, yes. addressing these issues, uh, we've been on this series for a minute now, dealing with, at least the last couple of weeks, addressing the, uh, the things that are going on uh, when it comes to, as far as collateral damage of injustice. This is what we call this. Uh, and we yes. salute you for your efforts, how you are going forward in spite of things and circumstances being, uh, obstacles being there. Uh, that's to be admired, and we respect that without question. And I think what you're doing uh, is something that makes a difference. Tell me a little bit of, about what, when we're talking about that cruel and unusual treatment of inmates, of the sick. We talked about last week those that are on death, not on death row, but those that are terminally ill, uh, that are simply dying. They, they got a, a, a diagnosis of six months to live, some three months to live. And we have a system in place where it's next to impossible to get support. Exactly. People out. Talk to us about that. Yes, um, you're exactly right. I mean, it's it's tragic, and it's been in place for years. However, the Bureau of Prisons rarely, you know, used it. And so many, 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 you know, prisoners, you know, died alone um, in prison without their family members, a lot of times months without any kind of communication with their family members. And sometimes even after they, they passed away, it would take weeks for them to even get notified that, you know, their uh, loved one had, um, 
had passed away. And the, the really sad thing about it is, is that there's absolutely no public safety factor involved with these, these people because they're all extremely ill and most of them are elderly. Yeah. So the risk factor is like next to nothing. But the good news is, is that when President Trump signed the First Step Act in December, it allowed, um, it improved accountability and the BOP's use of compassionate release. So now they're, they're being held accountable uh, to make sure that the requests that the prisoners are submitting are making it through the system in a timely manner and the ultimate in person who decides their release is the sentencing judge instead of a BOP employee. Now, my, my understanding, and I asked, you, I asked you a question on this one, as far as the First Step Act, uh, since it is legislation, basically legislation that has prompted really, that forces the hand of the Bureau of Prisons to act mm-hmm. responsibly exactly. uh, in regards exactly. to the situation, because they have set back uh, it, with, and it's a matter of implementing that, that, uh, that implementation. We were in Washington, D.C. a couple of weeks ago. Uh, meet with some members on Capitol Hill, and, and we were, they were explaining to us, uh, and, and, and basically some of the language needed to be adjusted. Some of that needed to be changed because it was something that was causing a delay, if you will, uh, of some of these prisoners actually going home. My understanding of that is that it is being worked out. Uh, it is being worked to the point where that language is being changed. And again, that has to be changed because otherwise you have the BOP. Uh, but states follow the same type of nonsense where they simply will just take their time doing what they're doing. So um, hopefully uh, I'm optimistic with you that this will get resolved quickly. Uh, And and hopefully what we're talking about tonight, some of these elderly people, the sick, hopefully they're at the top of the list to get out of there. Uh, And they are, Go ahead. Go ahead, uh, Deb. They are. And, and fortunately, you know, FAM has been able to put together um, a clearinghouse of pro bono attorneys so we were able to reach out into the prisons uh, via CoreLinks, their okay. email system, and yeah. uh, and get you know pr- put the word out and get prisoners to uh, to contact us who were sick and needed help with getting compassionate release. So so far we've gotten you know uh, quite a few attorneys, and so fingers are crossed that, you know, when all is said and done, they'll be able to come out and die, you know, with dignity. And let me ask you a question, Deb, since we're on that, on that topic here. Uh, last week we, we uh, had talked to, I actually, the ladies that were on our show last week, uh, one of the young ladies came on and, and shared a story about her husband uh, being diagnosed mm-hmm. with stage four cancer. Um, mm-hmm. he's, a, he's a model inmate. Has caused no issues, no problems, uh, and then you had other people that do, through our research that protested uh, a person getting out that's been locked up since 1981, uh, but they're dying now. I mean, my my th- my thought, and I'm going to get your opinion on this. If I've sat in prison since 1981, I've paid my debt in the in the prison system. Twenty years is considered a life sentence because in 20 years, if I'm given life in prison, I can walk out of prison in 20 years parole in 20 years. 
So you have these you have these folks here that are saying, "Look, we're dying here. There's no more tomorrow." Once they get out and they they're basically bedridden or whatever's going on until their closing hours. Do you know can you speak to what what is the outrage? And again, we've explained both sides. I understand that if a loved one's been taken from you and, and something's happened. But this is not about somebody getting out of jail free card. It's about somebody right. Dying. Right? It, I know. And I think part of it has to do with the victim's families. Sure. They feel that, you know, they lost their loved one. So why should this person be his, his sentence because he's dying? You know, I think that's, that's really what the problem is. I I, I don't think it's so much that they mean to be that way. It's just that's how they feel. But sure. a lot of them, you know, are like, well, you know, they're dying. So, you know, they paid their price, you know, let them, you know, let them out so they can, you know, uh, be with their families for the last couple of days or, you know, however much time they have. Sure. And, and, and what we're dealing with tonight, Devin, I want to get your thoughts on it, um, is not only do you have that, but then the cruelty behind the wall of, of medical care for these sick people. So let, let's, let's leave the conversation that, look, some of these folks are terminally sick. They're dying. They're hurting. But what about the treatment of the sick, the elderly, the cruelty that goes on behind the walls of these prisons? I mean, you got folks that uh, that are, I mean, can see that you are dying. And this is not only prisons. This is in county jails all across this country where their people are being treated worse than animals with conditions and without. We had a, and I'm going to play a clip uh, uh, for you uh, that, that, that uh, talks about uh, some of that when it, when it comes to, you know, one guy said, was making the point to these guards that he couldn't breathe. He was laboring in his breathing. And they let that man die. These are the things I'm talking about as far as collateral damage. I think what you do, compassionate relief, it's hard to offer compassionate relief when compassion ceases to be at the institution. Why would I feel compassion when I'm cruel to the people that are behind that wall? And that's, that's how it's been, and that's why people were dying behind walls. So yes. now, you know, Congress has taken, you know, taken that responsibility away from the BOP and given it back to, you know, the sentencing judges who, you know, can at least show a little bit more compassion. But as far as you were saying about, you know, the medical care itself, you are absolutely right. For many of these people, they would never be terminal in the first place had they have gotten the proper treatment when they first started complaining about their symptoms. That's what exactly. happens. You know, they just, they get ignored and then, you know, time goes by months, a year. And then by the time, you know, they're ready to, you know, fall over, then they take them out to a hospital. And then by then they're diagnosed with stage four with only months to live. So okay, that is the big problem. And, and something has to be done about that, because I think what it does with us is if you, all the efforts that you guys do at FAM, and man, you guys are doing a lot of things, and you guys are saying, look, compassion, compassion, compassion. If we don't change the system as a whole when it comes to the treatment of inmates, 
then it makes your job harder climbing uphill when the culture at these institutions are not compassionate yeah. at all. I'm gonna play I wanna play a clip for you, Deb, and I'm gonna get your thoughts on it. And then I got a question in regards okay. to what you said regarding the sentencing judges. Let's hear the clip. Okay. Okay. All right. video of this man's death he was recovering from pneumonia not one effort was made for medical care for this guy not one effort not one call to medical they shut him after all of that they put him in his cell on the floor where he died. And Deb, these are the things that are troubling to us, and these are the things we're talking about when it comes to cruelty. This is cruel. And the man is in such a state of panic. He's apologizing for nothing because he didn't do anything. He went to the officer and said, I, I'm having a problem breathing. The officer body slammed him without, without reason. When you hear that, Deb, please tell me your thoughts on something like that and why this is so important that this discussion happened. Well, that was absolutely uncalled for. That type of treatment, you know, against anyone, regardless if you're sick or not sick, is yes. just uh, – I mean, horrible. I mean, I, I don't even know how they can do it and, and live with themselves. But to somebody that's 
sick and you know they're sick, it's like there's no purpose in it. I, I, I don't know why somebody would be that hateful to, uh, to do that to another human being. It's well, basically, you know, the bottom yeah. line. Well, what's concerning is, and, and th- these are the things, when you, and, and your passion, your outrage to it, that should be the outrage of every person. And why is yeah. it's not just about how do they sleep at night? What are you doing free? Because you killed a man. You killed a man. You denied this man treatment. And you ignored his request for medical care. I promise you, any hospital, any clinic, any person that ignores that, you're culpable. And these are the things that people don't want to talk about. We bring it to the attention of the public because, really? You treated somebody like that? You let a man die like that? So I, I, I agree with your, your, your outrage. I'm outraged by it. And this man is begging. He said, please, you just refuse him care? I, I'm, I'm at a loss for words on it. And then Lamont, the... After you listen to that clip, and you have to ask, uh, we as society, and also of this uh, of the system, and those correction officers involved, where's the accountability for the loss of life? What has happened to those correctional officers who not only drugged this man around, tased him, wouldn't give him any medical attention? Wouldn't give him water when he was begging for it and then said, we're placing him back in his cell and just let him die. Where is the accountability of those officers, of their superiors, of that institution, of the system on a whole? Who is accountable for that man's death? Who has been held responsible for saying a person is gone? We have no explanation to his family. But now... That institution goes on like, oh well, there's there's another there's another animal that died in the street, another piece of roadkill. Where is the accountability? Where is uh, like Debbie said, where is the human factor? Where is oh. just the basic, oh my God, what have we done? We need to change this. If it wasn't done on purpose, then why are the correction officers not crying out to their superiors saying we need a better way to handle situations like this because I'm not going to watch another uh, man die on my shift. It cannot happen. We as society have to say there has to be accountability. This is a life loss. Exactly. And and until they're, you know, you're exactly right. And until someone is, is held accountable and there's consequences for those actions, you know, it will continue to happen. There has to be, you know, accountability and there has to be consequences. They have to be held accountable for what they did. I mean, they killed a man. So until, you know, they are held accountable, you know, it will probably continue to happen, unfortunately. Now, Deb, I was, I was reading earlier here that you've become, an, you've really become a vocal advocate for criminal justice reform. Tell me, what can we yeah. do because you know what? We don't hear these stories about criminal justice reform. We hear about mass incarceration. We hear about you know, over, you know, outrageous sentencing, mandatory minimums, all these things. How do we get this part of this conversation 
because this is part of criminal justice reform. How people are treated in these prisons while they're there, how important do you think that is? And give me your thoughts. How do we get that conversation to the folks that make those decisions? Yeah, it's very important. And I think the best way to do it is to have your family members, you know, the prisoners' families, uh, reach out to their representatives, state and federal, and hold them accountable. You know, and, and that's yeah. what does it. I mean, you ha- they have to speak out. For every one letter, they consider one letter, you know, 10,000 votes. So, you know, right. it does, it, it really does pay to be vocal um, if you're, you know, a voting citizen. Oh, absolutely. Tell me, Deb, really quick, uh, a little bit about, uh, and I understand what you, what you went through within the system. Did you see or witness some of these things that we're talking about tonight? You know, no medical, Absolutely. did you? Absolutely. Yes, absolutely. I, I actually, you know, witnessed it all the time and it's gotten worse than when I was there because of all the budget cuts. But I, I will tell you a story about one of my friends, 38 years old. Uh, she worked in medical. That was her job. She was an orderly and she started having symptoms, you know, pain in her stomach and you know, uh, some bleeding, and she complained about it. And they said, oh, you know, just buy this on commissary, and um, it's probably, you know, diverticulitis or something. Anyway, she started dropping a lot of weight. And so one day while she was working and the lab tech was there doing uh, drawing blood, she went to him and asked him if, told him that she thought, she had cancer and asked him if he would, you know, please draw her blood without a, a doctor's order. And he did. And when they got the results back, absolutely it was cancer. It was, had already metastasized to her liver and um, she was terminal. So I watched it, but for her, she was one of the lucky ones because she was able to get compassionate relief because she had family who were influential in, uh, in the community, and they went to their representatives, and the representatives stepped in and intervened with the BOP, and, you know, she was able to, um, to be released. Oh, yeah, you made us. You know, Go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, and she had, you know, wasn't even a long, you know, didn't even have a long, very minor, you know, maybe, you know, a couple of years, and that was it. And she ended up, you know, losing her life. Wow. Let me ask you a question, yeah, Deb. Was... I mean, go, go ahead, finish your point, Deb. No, I'm, I'm done. Let me ask you a question. And I know you'll understand this when I ask it. Um, you said the, this particular young lady was one of the lucky ones because she had an influential uh, family members in the community, they were, I presume, well-known or, pro, pro, you know, uh, of, of a certain status, you say. Exactly, um, yeah. The tragedy, shouldn't this, this is why we have the problem we have. Every human being is entitled to that same compassion. If I'm a nobody, and I have no family, and maybe my parents work at McDonald's. No disrespect to McDonald's, but maybe I'm making a 
a very low wage, possibly, considering versus the, the wealthy or the well-to-do. Is that same compassion given to me? If my family gets off work at 3 o'clock at McDonald's and makes a call to a representative, am I, do I go ignored because of my social status? Your thoughts probably on that one? sometimes, unfortunately. I mean... Yes, probably. These are the realities. And I think this is why uh, you have a country divided when it comes, I, I used to call it unequal justice. Uh, Samson, you had a thought on this one? Yeah, the, the, just the statement of probably sometimes. I mean, let, let's be realistic about it. You know, the, the more clout, the more influence you have in society, you're going to make some things happen. If you're sitting there putting some money in some politician's coffers or working on some judge's reelection committee, you make a phone call, things happen. The fact of the matter is it's sad, but it's true in the fact that, you know, yes, there is a disparity between those that are in the middle and lower income brackets and those that are in the top 5%, 10%. Well, well that's why I think what FAM does, yeah. and, and Deb, what you do, is so critically important because you guys help. Whoever comes with the need, how can we help? How can we assist? That speaks volumes about FAM. Um, and so I think the, the organization you represent, I believe, is unique in itself that says, look, we don't care where you come from. If there's a problem, <laughs> yeah. we need to help you. And I think, I think you, you and, and FAM, the FAM organization, should be, should be uh, definitely respected for that and admired for that. Um, the vision of FAM from what since you've been there what what is the culture there that creates that type of environment and that type of attitude in your opinion well i mean fam has changed a lot since 1991 when uh fam was founded by julie stewart um they just focused on one thing and that was mandatory minimum sentencing yes. Mm-hmm. But the last several years, we have really branched out into all kinds of different areas like prison reform, uh, uh, the mm-hmm. compassionate release, uh, halfway houses. I mean, we're, we're pretty much like, and we're in a lot of states now where we used to just be uh, at the federal level. And so our team has really grown. And we have a team of so many diverse uh, individuals, you know, ranging in age. And I mean, it's just, it's just amazing. And I think that, you know, plays a big part in everybody's compassion to help people. And, uh, especially those that are less fortunate, but, you know, we're there to help anybody. It really doesn't matter what your, you know, uh, statuses or, or anything like that, but I'm just, you know, I, I think that it's just the group of people that we have right now uh, work together, and I think everybody is just really caring, you know, and that's why we have, you know, a really good team. Oh, and that's awesome, uh, Deb. And listen to this real quick. The Bureau of Justice Statistics found that older inmates are more susceptible to costly chronic medical conditions. They typically experience the effects of age sooner than people outside prison because of issues such as substance use disorder, inadequate preventive, preventative and primary care before incarceration, and stress linked to the isolation and sometimes violent environment of prison life. For these reasons, older individuals have a deepening impact on prison budgets. At the federal level, an assessment by the Justice Department's Inspector General found that within the Bureau, uh, 
within the Bureau of Prisons Institutions with the highest percentages of aging individuals spent five times more per inmate on medical care and 14 times more per inmate on medication than those with the lowest percentages. So when you hear that statistic, Deb, guess what? You know where I go? Oh, no, they're withholding care to save money. So the value of life doesn't matter. Because if you're paying five times more because they're seniors, somebody in, in the upper level of that institution is saying, man, we can't afford that. That's too much money. I think that's why we see the death, the cruelty. What are, you, what are, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I think that that could, you know, very well be a possibility. I'm, you know, I mean, the, the medical costs for the elderly, I mean, are like quadruple that of someone who's in their 20s. That's, that's you know, sure. that's just the truth of the matter. So, yes, they, you know, absolutely, you know, they, they do whatever they can to try and prevent, um, you know, having to send somebody out to, you know, a, a regular doctor or a regular hospital to have treatment because it is very expensive. So that's why so many folks end up, like I mentioned earlier, end up yes. terminal when if they would have been treated properly in the beginning, you know, they would probably um, not be, you know, in the situation that they're in and, um, you know, terminal. Oh, absolutely. And Deb, listen, I want to have an opportunity uh, I know we got another segment, another guest going to be joining us here shortly. Uh, what I'd like you to do, I'd like to be in touch with you. I want to hear more about FAM. I want to hear more about your story, some of the things you experienced, which we, you never can fit it in a particular show when you're dealing with the topic. But if you're open to it, we'd love to have you back uh, and to have a conversation in depth about some of the things that you may have seen that has really shaped and molded your life as an advocate. I think that makes you very effective in what you do. Are you open to that? Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Do me a, fa- do me a favor. I'm more than happy. Thank you. And do me a favor. Tell our listeners how they can get a hold of you. If they, if they have issues or families, what is the best course of action as far as contacting FAM uh, and, and getting any resources that FAM may be able to offer? Well, they can, they can go to FAM uh, online. The, our website is FAM at FAM.org. Um, there's all kinds of information there, federal and state, on, on all different, you know, uh, issues. Uh, they can reach me uh, by calling 202-822-6700 and just ask for Debbie. Or um, they can email me at stories at fam.org so if you know somebody who needs help um that's how you reach out to stories s-t-o-r-i-e-s at fam.org okay and for uh uh, we're going to put your information on our website deb uh, so folks can contact you if they have a need uh in regards to that i can't thank you enough again for taking time this evening with us and with our listeners across the nation and uh, I definitely want to talk to you. I will be in touch, okay? Okay, absolutely. And thank you so much for having me. And thank you for, for joining us. We appreciate it. It's our honor. Thank you so much. All right. Bye-bye. And there you have it, folks. Deb Campbell, Debbie Campbell, excuse me, Deputy Director of Fam, Family Outreach and Storytelling at FAM. Um, William, she offers quite a bit uh, in what she's talking about, what, again, the direction 
uh, the direction of FAM uh, has taken a different turn, uh, but in a positive way, because as we progressively get to a new area, dealing with the criminal justice system, dealing with what challenges we face, speaks volumes about FAM and what they're doing. Yeah, absolutely. And, and where she's come from, what she, her experience yes. has definitely driven her and, and forced her into this, into um, to lead this organization and say, you know what, there's some things that need to be done. I mean, the bottom line is, is that the criminal justice system has operated in the dark for so long and, and nobody has called them in question. And so now we're bringing light to these issues. And the thing is, people need to be aware of what's going yeah. on. And, and, and I think one of the things is we need to understand that these, these prisons are for profit. So their penalty for these cruel acts is not that you know they they can say hey if you find us a couple thousand dollars or whatever that's we can we can absorb that yep. to to basically menace and terrorize these people no absolutely right and uh and her position on compassionate release uh her friend uh, a stranger not a doctor pulled her blood and found out she had stage four cancer and everything was already kind of gone. But the prison didn't do the job. They could have easily done that, got her home with her family. This is this is a serious, serious issue. Right now, joining us, uh, and we are honored to have Mayor, City of Atheboro, Massachusetts, Paul, uh, is it Herrock? Hero? Herrocks? I'm sorry. Sure. Paul, did I pronounce that okay? Yeah, you got it just fine. Thanks for having me okay. on. Thank you, Mayor. We appreciate you joining us tonight as we've been into this discussion regarding cruel treatment, uh, collateral damage of injustice, if you will, and the treatment of the sick, the dying, uh, those that are mentally challenged in America's prisons. Uh, We are honored to get your perspective tonight. I'm going to let you introduce yourself to our listeners, and let's have a conversation. Go ahead, Mayor. Okay, well, thank you. Thanks for having me on. Um, yeah, I am currently the mayor of Attleboro, Massachusetts. It's a small city in southeastern Mass. And prior to this, I was a state representative. And prior to that, I worked in the Mass prison system as well as the uh, Philadelphia jail system. Okay, so you've seen some things for sure uh, along the way. Uh, mayor, as we talk about this issue of compassionate release, of uh, the treatment, uh, the accountability, all the things that are lacking in, in, in these prisons, and what, what are your thoughts of how do we fix this problem? Uh, Deb made a good statement for Fam that man, where is the human spirit, uh, the human decency of treatment to treatment of human beings? What are your thoughts on this as, as of, for what you've seen and what you've had an opportunity to observe in this situation regarding this issue? Well, I think if you were to talk to um, a lot of prison administrators, you're going to find that they would probably, most of them are going to probably be supportive of compassionate release because of what it does to prison budgets and the prison population. Uh, Unfortunately, it's not going to happen without a political uh, climate. So you might have it in some states and you might not get it in other states, you know, depending on if, you know, some states are more progressive and other states possibly more conservative. So, you know, getting through the politics of it is going to be tough. You know, I'm up here in Massachusetts, which is considered a fairly progressive and liberal state. But even up here, when I was in the state legislature, we tried to avoid calling it compassionate release because, uh, you know, we didn't want it to, uh, you know, to be criticized by people that were opposed to that, you know, the release of it. Um, you know, a lot of people feel that, you know, you should just do your time and that's the end of it. But it's, it's not quite that simple as you guys know. Mm-hmm. 
No, it's not. And and I guess I think what's troubling to a lot of people, and make no mistake about it, Mayor, we understand uh, when loved ones are taken in a violent act or a crime and someone dies and it's the grief of losing someone that you love. Sometimes that grief can go for a lifetime, depending on the circumstances of that loss. So by no means do we uh, make light of that side of the, of, the, uh, of the story. We're trying to find that not only is it a motivation by the system, uh, not about victims necessarily, but just to be cruel to those who are behind the wall and finding that distinction is what's critically important because if it's just a means to punish, then we have a problem. If it's about considering the victims as well, we understand those things have to be weighed. But it is so far to the, to, to the left when you're talking about addressing the cruelty before it ever comes to that or the failure to treat, or the failure to look at medically what's wrong with some of these inmates and just put them in a, in a room and say, shut the door. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Well, you know, if we are thinking about the victims, and we always should be thinking about the victims, we should also consider that the enormous costs associated with uh, aging inmates. Uh, you know, you, sometimes you might have anywhere four times more expensive, sometimes eight mm-hmm. times more expensive to house uh, somebody who needs medical care when they're a senior citizen. Um, but that money, we, we could make the argument that, on the one hand, these people who are aging inmates, their likelihood of recidivism is extremely low. I mean, you know, recidivism mm-hmm. is high in your young 20s. But by the time you're in your 60s and 70s and sometimes even 80s, the chances of you reoffending are basically that of somebody who never offended in the first place. You know, we know right. that from... The studies have been done on recidivism. So, if we have somebody who's extremely unlikely to reoffend, then we're spending, you know, sometimes four or five, eight times as much money. That money could be better spent on prevention of crime in the first place, yeah. so that we don't have victims. So, we're, we don't. We have a very short-sighted policy of uh, vengeance and, you know, getting uh, just desserts, you know, for a crime, but. Like I said, being short-sighted, we're spending money in the wrong places. We could actually, you know, invest uh, these uh, what we're spending on healthcare costs in prevention programs, in programs to keep people out of mischief in the first place. So it, again, it all comes down to, you know, what someone's priorities are. Unfortunately, there's a lot of people I've worked with them, you know, a lot of legislators um, who think, you know, what, hey, let's just stick it to them. You know, they they made they did their crime. Let's keep them there for a long time. And, but, you know, then that, that's taking money away from programs that could have prevented other people from getting into trouble in the first place and other people being victimized. No, absolutely right, Mayor. And, and let me ask you, uh, you, you know, the talk right now, the first step initiative in Washington uh, with our legislators at the federal level. Uh, very few folks are excited about the first step uh, initiative uh, in, in dealing with prison reform. How important is it then? that we include the conversation of compassionate release into that talk of prison reform, where that, this is something that becomes mandated, that to say, look, we're going to mandate you. When somebody reaches stage four cancer and you're given six months to live, how realistic is it that we say, this is just, take political off the table, six months to live. I'm not, I'm not what am I going to do when I'm that sick? 
And as you said, the returning to prison is very unlikely for not only the elderly, but also the terminally ill. Is, what are your thoughts as far as us trying to incorporate that uh, with our legislators at the federal and state level regarding prison reform? Well, as far as us incorporating that at the federal level, trying to impose it on the state, um, I think we might run into Tenth Amendment issues. So it might not be uh, too possible unless it were to go through the Supreme Court and be okay. considered a Eighth Amendment. You know, under those circumstances, I think that's where we could get federal imposing down on the state. But otherwise, um, you know, this is something that an organization, a conservative organization called Right on Crime, and I know a number of years ago, Newt Gingrich, you know, he's an arch conservative. He was a member of this organization, you know, Right on Crime. And what they finally started to realize by um, investing in, you know, uh, prevention, investing in progressive, what are traditionally thought of as progressive type of approaches, you can actually spend less on incarceration. And so mm-hmm. they've actually taken more of a fiscal point of view, whereas, uh, you know, folks on the left take it from more of a social justice point of view. The good news is that both of them, you know, have the same type of uh, outcome, which is a good thing, you know, if, you know, they, they're just doing it for one reason. We might, you know, on the left and progressives might be doing it for another. But the, the outcome is basically the same. Oh, definitely so. Uh, Mayor, we're going to take a quick break. Um, I, I know you are, are limited, I believe, on time. Can, can you come back with us and, and, and have some more conversation on this issue? i got a couple of questions I'd like to ask you uh, as far as uh, your aspirations, uh, inspiration, rather, or motivation, if you will, into getting into politics to make a difference. We got a lot of politicians. I'd like to ask you to get you a few questions on that. Uh, got a yeah, got an idea that hey, got an idea, Mayor. Maybe you should be on Pennsylvania Avenue coming up 2020 with this type of vision. That's that's critically important. We're going to get your thoughts on that on the other side of the break. Does that work for you? That works just fine. I'll be here waiting for you. Okay, ladies and gentlemen of America, AJC Radio, dealing you know addressing an issue, collateral damage of injustice, cruel treatment of the sick, the dying. Conversation getting talking about compassionate relief, uh, human decency, uh, the sick, the elderly. What position, what image does America paint for the rest of the world? We'll deal with that on the other side of the break. This is AJC Radio. We'll be right back. How often does our justice system get it wrong, convicting innocent people of crimes they did not commit? A new project by the University of Michigan Law School and the Center for Wrongful Convictions at Northwestern University School of Law tries to answer that question. In the last 23 years, more than 2,000 people have been convicted of serious crimes and later exonerated, according to the National Registry of Exonerations. By far, the largest segment was almost 1,200 defendants falsely convicted because of large-scale patterns of police corruption, generally in drug and gun cases. Of the remaining 873 defendants exonerated, nearly half were wrongly convicted of murder, and of that group, 101 were sentenced to death. On average, it took more than 11 years for a conviction to be set aside. Why does the justice system get it wrong? In homicides, the biggest problem is perjury and false accusation, most often by supposed eyewitnesses. False convictions in adult rape cases are primarily based on mistakes by eyewitnesses, while false convictions in child sex abuse cases 
charges are often for fabricated crimes that never occurred. 2,000 exonerations may seem small in a nation with more than 2.3 million people behind bars, but there are far more false convictions than the report contains. Most false convictions are never formally challenged, and those convictions that are successfully overturned receive little or no attention from the media, according to the report's authors. For a kid whose mom or dad is in prison, life is tough. Now add a wrongful conviction to that, life just got a little bit tougher. Trying to explain to friends why mom or dad is not at the school play or at the ball game is something that no kid should ever be faced with. Especially if mom or dad is innocent. Ladies and gentlemen, get involved today to stop the epidemic of wrongful convictions by remembering a just cause with a monthly, annual, or one-time donation. You can help in the fight against wrongful convictions. Call a just cause today, 1-855-529-4252. We seek justice for the children as they go to bed at night and mom's not there, dad's not in the other room to make them feel safe. Not because dad or mom did anything wrong, because justice could not be found. Join us for the children, for they truly are our future. We know you care. Now is time. Time to change the face of justice. Did you know that minority and youth participation in juries is extremely low to non-existent? The incidence of youth and minority offenders faced with trials have exploded. Youth and minorities are not being represented as they should be. We must represent for people to get fair trials. If you acquire a state ID or driver's license, it allows you to register to vote. And it allows you to become eligible for jury service. If you're 18, a U.S. citizen with a state ID or driver's license, and registered to vote, you're eligible to be called for jury duty. If called and selected, make it your duty to serve. We can't get justice without you. Change. 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 Change the face of justice. Check your local county or state jury service website for further details. back, ladies and gentlemen, to AJC Radio. Collateral damage of injustice, cruel and unusual punishment, if you will. You can call it that. Failure to treat inmates. Uh, medical care, the mentally ill, you name it. Uh, we're addressing that issue. Uh, we're very happy uh, tonight. Uh, we've been joined by, uh, by the mayor of... Uh, 
I believe it's Attleboro, Massachusetts. Paul Hero, and he is, I'll tell you what, he's putting some information to our listeners tonight uh, that makes a lot of sense. And uh, I was, I was kind of joking with him before the break. Uh, we may need his vision at uh, Pennsylvania Avenue in the very near future. Mayor, thank you for joining us. Well, thank you for having me on again. So, Mayor, uh, tell me, Will, Will uh, as, you can, as you can explain it to our listeners, uh, what you're talking about and what your position is on these issues uh, has the human spirit to it, uh, the, the, the decency uh, to say that people should be treated fairly, regardless of their situations. Uh, what motivated you to get into, into public service uh, that has you on this path uh, to be a voice uh, in what you're doing? Well, I I guess going, you know, my whole career has been in public service. I used to work for a nonprofit with uh, kids, you know, five to twelve year old kids, when I was going through college, and then after that. But after I graduated with a master's in criminology at the University of Pennsylvania, I uh, went to work for the Philadelphia jail system, and you know, there was something that I saw every single day going through into work. My office was in intake. And Philadelphia is about 45% black, but, you know, and people of color. But every single day as I went into my office in intake, um, you know, I saw about 91, 92 new inmates. That was how many new inmates we had every single day. And about 90% of them were people of color. I said to myself, something's just not right here. And so after working in the Philadelphia jail system, I went back to Massachusetts where I'm from, and I worked for the mass prison system, and I was quite frustrated that we never even evaluate whether or not the programs we're offering are reducing recidivism or not. We just offer these programs. We didn't even evaluate them. And and people depend on that. You know, people who are counting on these programs to rehabilitate them, as well as, you know, society and the people who could potentially be victimized. So, you know, that's what motivated me to run for state representative. And, you know, I did that for five years, three terms. Um, I left halfway through my third term, and then I uh, became mayor of Attleboro, Massachusetts, where it's um, you know, my, uh, my hometown, my home city. But since being mayor, I've actually created uh, a new initiative called MORE, Mayor's Office Reentry. And that, it, there's a little bit of controversy around that. So some people would believe that you know, you're just attracting inmates or you know, ex-offenders to Attleboro. But at my response is, you know, they're already here. And it's in everybody's interest to make sure that they have the – uh, support they need to get back on their feet after release from uh, jail or prison. No, absolutely right, uh, Mayor, and you should be applauded and commended for that. Um, the bottom line is the more people will get out of prison and return to society. So do we just have no second chance uh, for these men? If we call it the Department of Corrections, the name itself says we are here to correct you. That's a joke. Exactly. No, right? that's exactly right. Yeah, it's exactly right. It's the Department of Correction. When I was working in jail and then when I was working in prison, you know, my philosophy was that we should be releasing uh, these individuals back to society in better condition than they arrived. Unfortunately, the current state of incarceration and confinement in the United States, more often than not, we're actually releasing people in worse shape because now they have a criminal record. They have uh, you know, lost contact with their friends and family. They're, um, 
you know, obstacles to reentry are really high. You know, the, the first thing they have to find that night, they need a place to stay, and that's often difficult. You know, the cards are stacked against them when trying to get a job or trying to get educational opportunities, especially educational funding from the federal government. So, you know, it, it's kind of, I don't, I don't mean to say this flippantly, but the fact that we call it the Department of Correction or Department of Corrections, it's actually kind of a misnomer. It's kind of a joke. I mean, that doesn't really mm-hmm. happen to the degree we should see it happening. No, absolutely right. I agree with that. Because if I'm going to correct you, uh, this is what this is the statement I use all the time. And I don't know why prison reform, and I'll get your thoughts on this, Mayor, why prison reform doesn't take this into account. I should not have a problem. Now, check it out. Say the people that are sick, that are getting released back into society. When you say the, the, it's stacked against them, more so to the sick and the, and the elderly and the, the mentally ill. How are they supposed to, the, the stress alone of trying to get a job, trying to get a place to stay? I should have no problem going to apply for an apartment when my debt is paid. Okay. Why am I being judged off of that? I use this analogy all the time. If I go to JCPenney and charge up $2,000 and I get a notice, hey, Mr. Banks, you have a bill to pay. Okay, I pay it in full. When I go back to JCPenney, they're not going to tell me, well, you did have a bill last month for $2,000. They're going to encourage me to shop because why? The debt is paid. That same thought process should be to the inmates who walk. They paid the debt. They've spent sleepless nights in jails, in prisons, without their loved ones, and you want to continue to punish them? And God help the mentally ill or the sick trying to get Medicare or Medicaid Medical attention out of the penitentiary. What is the ratio? I wonder. Our research team will look for it. How many people are dying outside of these prisons? Mayor, we got a call real quick, and we're going to come right back to you. Yes, we have uh, Nita from California has a comment. Uh, Nita, you're live. Yes, I was, I'd just like to say, why not put these people on house arrest who are critically ill or mm-hmm. a care facility? I think that would be more fiscally sound. And mm-hmm. I would also like to mention a certain inmate that deserves a second chance. He's a youth mentor, co-founder of Believe in Change, co-author of Giving Girls a Voice, and in my opinion, deserves a compassionate release. His name is Michael Gardner, and you can... I would like if you everyone would go to change.org and please sign his petition. Thank you very much. And thank you for your call. We appreciate that. We'll look into that as well. Um, Mayor, um, give me your thoughts, if you will, and we're, we're going to be respectful of your time tonight. We know you're on the East Coast there. Which I think what you've added to the conversation tonight, as I said earlier, uh, makes a lot of sense. Uh, this is a fixable issue. Why is it a situation where politically, as you stated, there's politics, which is in every part of our society. How do we get, and what would you say to our listeners who are grasping for something to hope in and to believe optimistically, can this be something that can be turned around in your opinion, Mayor? I do believe it's something that we can turn around because as I was talking about earlier, 
the outcome is the same for both folks on the left and folks on the right, but they might have different reasons. So the folks, some, some folks on the right, you know, some politicians on the right are starting to recognize that um, the mass incarceration is not fiscally sustainable. And folks on the left have been saying that for a long time, but they say it from more of a social justice point of view. Now, there's two things that contribute to incarceration, like the prison populations and mass incarceration. That is admissions and length of stay. Everything falls under those two things. And this issue of compassionate release is an issue of length of stay. And when we have inmates who are staying uh, incarcerated for long periods of time, they start to pile up on top of each other. And, and that's, that's really expensive. Now, your previous caller uh, from California, she mentioned that we could have house arrest. I think yeah. that's a great idea. Yeah, it's a fan, you know, because it's something that um, would shift the health care costs off of the prison system. It would uh, ease mass incarceration. It would free up the uh, number, the ratio of inmates to correctional officers. Um, you know, there's, there's really no downside to it. The only right. problem is there is this mentality, it's a very unfortunate mentality, that, you know, well, because they, uh, how should I put it? In my experience working in the state legislature, there are some politicians who basically have the attitude that the bad guys, the people who are locked up, are used to define the good guys because they are so drastically different. So it, they actually use them, well, well, this is who they are, they and them. They are the ones who are, you know, committing all these heinous crimes. So, you know, I'm a virtuous person. I would never do that. You know, there's that, there's that really simplistic mentality that it, it's actually more egotistical than it is in the spirit of public service and trying to actually promote good public policy. Um, that's, we're always going to come across politicians that have that mentality. Like I said, I, even up here in progressive Massachusetts, liberal Massachusetts, I came across that a number of times with a number of legislators, it, sometimes even Democrats who were previously uh, like an assistant district attorney, assistant prosecutor. Even they had that attitude. So it's, um, we're not going to win all of them. But like I said, if we can make it the argument that there's a lot of uh, savings to be found by eliminating these uh, you know, inmates from being incarcerated while they're aging, you know, that's a win-win for both the social justice of it as well as the uh, fiscal reason and mass incarceration, which is just a problem everywhere. No, absolutely right, Mayor. Mayor, let me say thank you on behalf of AJC Radio tonight. For your perspective on this discussion, we'd love to have you back on. If you're doing things there in Massachusetts that you need a platform to speak from and let the, the country know, because, listen, I'm finding out that a lot of legislation that hits the federal level comes from a mayor's idea, a governor's idea, and it goes viral across the nation. I think what you, what you add to the, this conversation uh, needs to be heard. And uh, I appreciate your work, your service, all that you've done for this nation and the work that you've done. Uh, we salute you for that. And whether you believe it or not, it, it falls under the definition of advocate. And I don't care if that's coming out of the mayor's office, the governor's, or the president, the president of the United States. We need more of it. And we appreciate what you do. And thank you for taking time out of your evening uh, to have this conversation well, with us tonight. Well, thank you for what you guys do by raising the, uh, you know, your voices on this and you know, spreading the message. And you know, I'm happy to be back on sometime. We appreciate it, and we'll definitely reach out, Mayor. Uh, the best of uh, luck to you. Be safe out there, and uh, have a good rest of the evening. All right, thanks, you too. Take care. All right. Bye. Well, folks, there you have it. Mayor Paul Haru, 
Mayor City of Attleboro, Massachusetts. Um, our panel is going to get in discussion on the other side of this break. Collateral damage of injustice. We're going to have some clips for you, and we're going to talk about it tonight. I think what our guests have brought to the table tonight is open for discussion. We're getting ready to have that discussion with our panel here after this. This is AJC Radio. Collateral damage of injustice, the cruel treatment of the sick, the dying, the elderly, and all that fall under that umbrella. This is AJC Radio. We'll be right back. Do you know anyone who's been sent to prison who's innocent? The United States is experiencing record numbers of exonerations in cases where people were wrongfully convicted of crimes they did not commit. If you believe that no one should be sent to prison for crimes they didn't commit, there is something that you can do today. By remembering a just cause with a monthly, annual, or one-time donation, you can help in the fight against wrongful convictions. Call a just cause at 855-529-4252 or visit a-justcause.com and click the donate button. A just cause is a 501c3. Wrongful convictions are wrong. Let's be the voice of those who can't speak from behind the wall. We have a big problem, and we need your help. It's happening on college campuses, at bars, at parties, even in high schools. It's happening to our sisters and our daughters. Our wives and our friends. It's called sexual assault, and it has to stop. We have to stop it. So listen up, if she doesn't consent, or if she can't consent, it's rape, it's assault. It's a crime, it's wrong. If I saw it happening and I was taught, you have to do something about it. If I saw it happening, I'd speak up. If I saw it happening, I'd never blame her, I'd help her. Because I don't wanna be a part of the problem. I wanna be a part of the solution. We need all of you to be part of the solution. This is about respect, it's about responsibility. It's up to all of us to put an end to sexual assault. And that starts with you. Because one is too many. A Bart police officer who shot and killed a man. When I first saw the Oscar Grant footage, like a lot of people here in Oakland, I was outraged. As soon as I heard about it and I went online and I seen what had happened, tears came down my eyes. It was something that was very alarming as a police officer and as a citizen of Oakland. It was like such a blatant murder. You have a city in trauma. Anyone that's seen that and looks at it is in trauma. My hope is that people will express their concern with police brutality, but they will do so in constructive ways that don't include violence. We cannot perpetrate this cycle of harm and violence in this community. Because we do have to live here and they terrorize the city and it's only going to make it worse for us. They killed our young you can protest, you can try to make a change, but there is a positive way you can do it. And make sure we let the police know and that we're aware that stuff ain't right out here. We're trying to fix it. In a way that is about using your voice for justice. And making Oakland a safer place for everyone to live and get along as one. Violence is not just Violence is not justice. Violence is not justice. Violence is not justice. I'm a mother. I'm a father. I'm a sister, a registered nurse. I serve my country in the United States military. I'm your neighbor. I sit next to you at church. And my child was arrested, held in custody, 
questioned without my knowledge. Exposed to violence. Witnessed to rape. Placed in solitary confinement. Unable to call or see me. Shackled to a wall. Beaten. Sentenced as an adult at age 17. Sentenced as an adult at age 16. Sentenced as an adult at age 15. We felt lost. Isolated. Ostracized. Misjudged. Terrified. And in the absence of all hope, my child took his own life. And then I found the Alliance for Youth Justice. They gave me the support and resources to get through one of the most difficult times in my life. Now I know I'm not alone. And neither are you. Now we have a voice. Now we We have have power. In numbers. In numbers. In numbers. We can make a difference. There are approximately 2 million children in the juvenile and criminal justice system in this country. These are the faces of those families. If you are the family member of a child who has been in the justice system, or if you are someone who supports this movement and is ready to make a difference, visit the Campaign for Youth Justice at www.campaignforyouthjustice.org. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to AJC Radio. As tonight, America's faced with some questions of its moral character, which is in bankrupt status. We have inmates in prisons across this country, inmates in county jails across this country, cruel and unusual punishment doesn't begin to explain the horrors of the collateral damage of how we treat our citizens, but to a a more horrible end, those that are the most vulnerable, which are the sick, the elderly, uh, those that are not capable physically to defend themselves against a system that seems to have turned their backs Uh, on those in our society, and they are the most vulnerable. Um, Dennis, when you hear this, what are your thoughts as we talk about, if that was my dad, who's 80 years old, 75 years old, I'm telling you, it is a point that we ignore as a nation, as a people in this country. And I think the mayor made it plain. He said, there's they're more likely not to ever. What are you going to do at 80 years old, at 70, at 65, dying? What are you going to do? And why is this not a topic of discussion within our prison reform talks? I, I agree. It should be in. Uh, it should be at the top of the discussion because, again, uh, no one's no one's just dying is coming back. Hopefully, that's very unlikely that they're going to return back to prison and to have compassion and to release them early enough, knowing that, I mean, either they're too old or they have a serious illness, knowing that they're not even going to make it. But again, we always talk about 
how there is a loss of compassion. There is none. Uh, an eye for an eye. I mean, that's that's the attitude. You know, uh, I lost my loved one. Who cares what happened to you? But until we get America to start really looking at it, and I mean, the mayor talked about how on one side it's a, it's a money issue, on the other side it's a social issue. But no, how, no matter how you look at it, people would come home. You know, they would be released. But again, until America, until we, and again, look what AJC is doing, what the mayor is doing, what the two uh, ladies we talked to the other day is doing. I mean, they're making a difference. It's getting out there. And people are starting to understand that we do have a problem with our justice, our, our justice system and that it does need reform. So now at least we, we're getting it out there. But until we, we America truly take hold to, to compassion, get it back in the system, I tell you, we're going to continue to have these problems where old people, people with, uh, you know, that, that are dying in the prison, it's not going to make it out of their lives. Well, my point is, to what end? To what end are we doing this? I don't understand it. Let's play a clip talking about the elderly in Illinois prisons. Let's see the clip. They're not the usual images of locked up criminals, but one growing group of inmates some say is creating a dangerous dilemma for Illinois taxpayers. He needs a lot of care. He can't hardly move. He sits in a wheelchair all day. Bill Hirons has spent more time in Illinois prisons than any other inmate alive. He's been taxpayers' obligations since age 17 when he was convicted of triple homicide. Now 82, his caregiver, a fellow inmate, says Hirons is too ill to speak himself about the $70,000 a year he requires in health care. I would say easily, easily that much. He's getting weaker. He's been sick a couple times, and he gets sent out to the outside hospital, I twice. Bill Hirons is currently housed here at the Dixon Correctional Center, the state's largest geriatrics ward. He's part of a growing group of aging inmates whose health care costs are adding up. Prisons spend two to three times more to incarcerate elderly inmates than younger ones, and as much as four times more on their health care. And it's a booming population. Between 1999 and 2007, the number of inmates 55 and older grew nearly 77%. It's grown enormously. The Illinois Department of Corrections says aging baby boomers and stricter sentencing laws are keeping more people behind bars longer, adding to the already large health care budget. It's a substantial proportion. It's over $150 million um, for health services for the Illinois Department of Corrections. Robin Best, a former corrections nurse of 28 years, says that $150 million is providing better care to inmates than the average person would receive on the outside. The quality of care is, is a lot better than people would think in a prison. For example, we do have AD requirements that say hypertensive have to be seen every four months. Having a, a grand elderly grandmother that you know died recently of a stroke, I don't think she was seen every four months. Is it possible some low-level offenders may try to get into prisons for the free health care? Oh, I think. Yes, I do. I always call it doing life on the installment plan, but that will come in and out, you know, reoffend. And a lot of it is for food and health care falls into it. Despite abuses, the state says they legally have to maintain a standard of care, 
even if that means sending inmates to outside specialists for treatment. That was decided in 1976 by the U.S. Supreme Court, where they said you have to attend to medical necessities of inmates, and cost is not an object. But the rising cost of health care, coupled with the sprouting elderly population, has caught the attention of some in Springfield. In 2009, a bill recommended early release for inmates over 50 who'd served at least 25 years. Supporters used studies to show older inmates are 40% less likely to reoffend. But the proposal was shot down in the House. One of the lawmakers who voted no, Representative Pat Vershore. Analysts said it become portrayed as soft on crime. For saving a few dollars, it's, it's not worth someone getting killed. It's, you know, I don't care how much you save if you lose one life. Upholding public safety while protecting taxpayers. A dilemma growing more expensive each day as Illinois inmates gray into more Bill Hirons. There's one bit of far worse off than him. Listen to this. Locked away in the Mineral County Jail for failing to take care of her traffic tickets, 27-year-old Kelly Coltrane asked to go to the hospital. Instead, that really didn't happen. As her condition worsened, she was handed a mop and told to clean up her own vomit. She died in her jail cell less than an hour later. Despite being in a video monitor cell, Mineral County Sheriff's deputies did not recognize that Coltrane had suffered an an apparent seizure and had not moved for more than six hours. When a deputy finally entered her cell and couldn't wake her, he did not call for medical assistance or attempts to resuscitate her. Coltrane lay dead in her cell until the next morning when state officials arrived to investigate. She was already dead, 27 years old, requested to go. You hand her a mop to clean up her own vomit. She died in less than 60 minutes. This is what I'm talking about. Cruel. This goes beyond cruel. This is murder. This is murder. So we have a lot, and she's in jail for failing to take care of traffic tickets. Should have been out of jail. Should not even been locked up. Should have been released on her own recognizance. Period for a traffic ticket. Dead at the age of 27 for a failure by this system. Kendrick, your thoughts? It, it, it doesn't surprise me because I've seen that attitude with uh, the BOP and the personnel over and over again. And, and it, it reminds me of a story uh, of when I was incarcerated. We, I knew a gentleman named Mr. Kennedy. Uh, I didn't know his first name, but he came in with an existing heart condition. And they knew that he needed surgery and that his heart condition was so uh, acute that they told him not to exercise. I mean, even exercise could hurt this man. But they just had him in the population just like the rest of us. There was no monitoring his health. There was no coming to get a checkup. Well, Mr. Kennedy died in the gym on the floor with no one trying to provide CPR. 
it eventually took one of the inmates trying to revive him. Well, they told that inmate to stop and to pull him off. Now, this, this yeah, makes no sense. They told him to quit. Now, he tried the best he could, but what they, their solution was, call a lockdown, everybody inside. So each year in the Bureau of Prisons, they have what they call federal annual refresher training. And part of that training is they teach them CPR and to revive people. But in their mind, that CPR is only if another CPO, uh, CO is hurt. They don't consider an inmate as part of that training. They consider if, if, one of the, if my fellow CO goes down, I'm going to try to save his life. But if an inmate, they do nothing. So they sat there and stood in a circle around this guy, running back and forth, and it took 30 minutes before an ambulance arrived. Let me make sure I heard you. You're telling me an inmate trained for CPR. Attempted to save this man's life and was ordered to get off of him? Yes. After, after he was he was working on before because he, he, the man fell off a bike and was laid out in the gym. Well, he had the training. He said, yeah, I took the CPR training. I thought this might come in handy because he knew no one's going to care. Well, he's working on the guy, and they're like, well, go get help. Well, when the help comes, get off of him, clear the gym, everybody inside. And not like, well, let's exchange this with another person to continue the CPR. No, just everyone get out, leave him alone. Let him die. Let him die. Let's run around. Now, after that incident, which I didn't know at the time, there were supposed to be defibrillators around in every facility. There's supposed to be one in each unit, the cafeteria, the gym, anywhere where a person might need help. Well, there wasn't any. So what their solution was, was six months later, well, let's, after the fact, install defibrillators. Well, this could have saved this man's life. But they should have been installed. They should have been installed. Now, and, and, and it goes on to another issue. If you knew this man had an existing heart condition, he's not running away to escape. He's not going to do any crimes. Why isn't, just like the caller uh, suggested, why isn't this man on home confinement? He, I mean, he's not a danger to society. He's a danger to himself. If he overexerted himself too much, his life could end. So I don't think he's going to do anything at that point to cause any problem to society. No, absolutely right. Uh, This young lady, how are you in a cell that has a monitoring system in it? And you, you laid there for six hours. The protocol in doing a walkthrough... Is to make sure the person is breathing, that there's life. They'll ask you to move your hand. Hey, look up. Six hours, that is six different correctional officers, or the same one doing a shift. Six opportunities that they failed to do their job. There's no sense in calling a, a cell a monitoring cell when somebody lays in their own vomit and you throw them a mop? Are you kidding me? And you know why that is, Lamont? Yeah, the protocol is you're going in there. You're supposed to be insured. You're supposed to ensure the inmate is safe, alive, breathing, and doesn't you know need anything. What the what the American uh, justice system has become and these prisons and jails is don't we don't care if they're breathing we don't care if they're alive just make sure 
there's a body in that bed. Make sure that cell is occupied. Make sure that someone is there so we can mark off, yes, we need to charge X amount of dollars for this cell being occupied, for there being a body there. Whether that body is alive or dead, that, that really is not their concern. And it, it, if a person lay in the floor in their vomit for six hours and then say, and then say well, okay, something, something is wrong, and to find out this person is dead, that is the sickness of the system and why it has to be. I mean, where is the oversight? And who came in and said, how did six correctional officers pass by this cell and see this woman laying there? And you had nothing to say? Well, but where's the accountability? Where are the names of those six officers that did that? Why is their name not plastered in the media to say these are the correction officers that watched this woman die, that, that caused this family to lose a family member, that ignored her when she said she needed to go to the hospital? And where's the fool who said, here's a mop, mop up your own vomit? Where is he at, and why is he not being held for first-degree murder? Okay. It seems unreal to me. Yeah, and so, like that, that. And see, the connotation is, the, the Bureau of Prisons and, and, and even prisons in general, once you kind of have the belief that all these criminal, all these people in prison are violent criminals, okay? So that basically they must have either murdered or raped somebody, and they deserve what they get. Well, if you look on the BOP's web, 0.2% of the population is there for a violent crime, okay, let's like say homicide or kidnapping or whatever. 9.9% is there for sexual offense, okay? So that leaves 86% of the population is nonviolent, okay? So these are people that, that, according to the BOP, if we put them in society now, there's probably no risk of them hurting each other or hurting anyone else. So then the vast majority of people that you're not helping are not violent. So then why would you let this woman die? Because I guarantee she wasn't in there for murder. Traffic tickets. Traffic tickets. Okay, so you're telling a person who, who that could be any one of us. Yeah. Traffic ticket. Put in jail, my life means nothing. It's a zero. How do I leave in a body bag for being in custody for a ticket? How do I get sentenced to death for a ticket? How do I go in, Sergeant Brown, a veteran, how does he... Voluntarily report for two days. He leaves in a body bag. This is unacceptable. And we say on this show every week, where is the accountability? Where is the justice? When a Mr. Rainey in Florida is cooked to death in a shower... Mentally challenged. As he screams for his life and bangs on that door, help me, please. And you let him die to his flesh separates from his body while you stand outside of a cell and laugh as this man, mentally ill, pleads for his life. This is beyond horror. And until we wake up and say we are outraged as a nation, as a society, as a people, as a community, 
We're in trouble. Because the body bags don't stop filling up. How do you, 27 years old, Miss Coltrane was. 27. Nobody's thinking when I go in the county for a ticket, I'm going to die. Not the case in 2019. Nobody thinks if I voluntarily go accept a plea and say I'll do 30 days in jail. Nobody expects to die. And they're dying at alarming rates. We have where officers have become barbaric to the mentally ill, the sick. Here a clip about a mentally ill woman who dies in a U.S. jail. Let's hear the clip. Another U.S. police video sparking anger. It shows a mentally ill woman uh, being tasered by medics and officers. Come on, kneel down. Kneel down on the ground. I've got one more. Kneel down on the knee. Kneel down on the knee. Video shows Natasha McKenna, a 37-year-old, restrained by medics and officers during uh, a cell transfer. The woman had been arrested for attacking a police officer. She also had a documented history of mental illness, including schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, and depression. McKenna died four days after the recorded taser incident, with medical staff declaring brain death associated with physical restraint. Officials describe what happened as, quote, tragic. None of the officers involved have been investigated. We spoke to Carl Dix, a civil rights campaigner who thinks that Natasha McKenna should not have been placed in police custody at all. A woman in that kind of distress should not have been in a prison because police should not be the people responding to and dealing with people who have severe mental illness. The police are oriented and trained to deal with people as criminal suspects, to beat them down, to incarcerate them, and to even kill them off. And that happens many, many times with people who are mentally ill. As was just mentioned, there have been numerous cases of mistreatment of mentally ill inmates at prisons. The following video shows other examples which you might find upsetting. Human Rights Watch says this problem is widespread. Back in May this year, it issued a report stating that officers in over 5,000 detention facilities across America use force when dealing with mentally ill prisoners. Tragic. Um, I don't know how people remain silent. 
how do people remain silent to the cries of despair, of torture? Can somebody explain to me how the mentally ill need to be used with force? Mont, there's there's absolutely no reason why any per, any person with any type of mental disease or psychological disorder should be a in any type of state, county, federal prison system whatsoever. You, these guys have no training whatsoever to even deal or recognize with this. And like the clip we heard, they're trained to treat people like they're violent offenders. They're they're there to beat them down. They're there to subjugate them. And they're there to incarcerate them. They are thought, the DOC is a joke. There is no correction going on. There is no help for any of these people. It's like, when are we as a society going to get tired of hearing the exact same regurgitated headlines? A person with this or that mental disorder died in custody today at the hands of however many officers. And the officers are not being brought up or investigated for any of these charges. We've heard it and seen it so many times on this show. So many articles. When are we going to get tired of it? Well, I can imagine um, Kelly Coltrane having a seizure alone on a cement floor. Has to be panicking, scared to death, and you throw her a mop. Mm -hmm. You throw her a mop. This is outrageous. And I don't care if you're at the state level. I don't care if you're at the federal level. We will not stop talking about this conduct that goes ignored. The mentally ill patient on the thing we just heard, tasered to death. Mentally ill, she's already probably labored in breathing. She is in distress as the mental part of things are not clicking. And you taser this woman to death. I don't get it. And why aren't those communities crying out against this killing? This is murder. If I take a taser right now and taser somebody until they stop breathing, I am going to for murder. There cannot be a double standard. And these political driven leaders at these police stations, at these county jails, they should be removed immediately from those posts because they don't have the temperament, if you will, to be in leadership. While people keep dying over and over again. Now we just, well, they died. That's somebody's sister that died. Perhaps somebody's mother that died. William, your thoughts? You know, it's it's a shame. I mean, it really is. These people have been given basically a license just to be cruel to people. And they don't, it's just do the bare minimum. You know, that's really what it's about. Do the bare minimum. The facility is at its bare minimum. The, the, the people there are minimally trained. They're not there to, to really help. 
you know, the the staff that is there, the medical staff that is there, probably there just during set hours to do just the bare minimum. And it's 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 cruel. I can't think of any other way. I mean, we would treat pets and dogs and other things better than we we're hearing. You hear these clips and these people are dying at the hands of these people and they're begging for their lives. They're saying, please, you know, why? Well, here's the bad part about this. They're not even doing the bare minimum. No, not at all. They're under that. Yeah. But when you, you know, when you brought up the whole Darren Rainey case, you know, you're talking about a man that was boiled in a shower. You know, and they talked about it. They talked about how they had they had a closet there that they could turn up the temperature, locked him in. And then send another inmate in there to clean up after that. Yeah, you know I mean, and, and then what do they get? Nothing. I mean, this is this these are not these are facts. This was facts about the case. This is not something that was made up. And yet these guys go, and I think the, the tale goes that they were laughing about it or you know, I mean, when does it become amusing to to treat people this way. Well, we hold the state, in the state level, the governor is held accountable. The executive director reports to the governor of the state, the executive director of the Department of Corrections reports to the governor. Why is there no oversight committees from the governor's office to oversee the conduct of state prisons? And we already know the joke. That the Bureau of Prisons has become and notably known for doing nothing on any level if there's an issue at a federal prison. That's that that's that's common knowledge now. You can call the BOP, say, look, we got a problem. People are being mistreated. The mentally ill, can you imagine their stress level? Can you imagine the elderly? who can barely move or walk to be slapped and mistreated and tasered and whatever kind of abuse is going on in these jails, in these prisons. Can you imagine their stress level? And their confusion. They and probably have no clue what's no going on. No idea. None. And then you, and I can just imagine she's down there having a seizure, and she hears the deputies coming, and she's probably thinking, oh, they're coming to help. And then they open the door, you think, okay, they're coming to help me. And they hand you a mop. I mean, imagine that. I mean, that's... Common sense says if you're at your workplace and someone has a medical issue, common sense says go help. Go help. How do you leave somebody there and you think, well, well, I'm not cleaning up your mess? It boggles the mind. It is, it is the sickest thing I have ever heard. I'm going to play a clip right now on a mentally ill man who was dragged through jail days before he died. Dragged. Let's hear the clip. Elsewhere, a video showing a mentally ill prison inmate in the U.S. being dragged by guards has been made public. You may find the following footage disturbing. Now, Abdul Akbar died in November last year, eight days after this video was shot. He spent more than three hours in a segregation area before being taken to hospital. He was serving a sentence in Detroit for breaking and entering. Initially, doctors concluded that Akbar died of natural causes related to heart disease and not from injuries received during the incident. 
Detroit police concluded that no criminal activity took place. But after the video emerged, Akbar's daughter filed a wrongful death lawsuit, believing the prison guard should be held responsible. Well, we contacted Wayne County Sheriff's Office, which is responsible for the prison, for their response to the allegations. The Wayne County Sheriff's Office conducted a thorough investigation and submitted a warrant request. Although the prosecutor declined to pursue charges, there still remains pending litigation in the U.S. District Court. Accordingly, we are going to refrain from commenting on the case at this time. Well, we discussed mentally ill people being mistreated in U.S. prisons with Michael Wood, a former police officer. He believes that inmates are in danger. This whole system is not built on the same matter of getting people back to where they need to be, to actually helping people. What this really shows is how, what can happen to people, especially black Americans, when they go to the prison system and get into the criminal justice system on, on something that's really minor or is, is like technicalities for people that don't deserve uh, to be treated in this manner entirely, to even like be in this situation for, for things that we're clearly not trying to get people uh, to improve. We're just doing things to keep making things more difficult for them and then putting them in these kind of situations where they're not even safe in the state's custody. Well, there have been numerous cases of mentally ill inmates abused in U.S. prisons, as documented in a Human Rights Watch report. Released alongside the report was the following footage, which again, you may find disturbing. I don't know, this is kind of funny. I don't know if you have a seizure or not. You get in trouble or not. Oh, in accordance with California Code Regulations Title 15-3268, we are authorized to use force, including chemical agents, to physically extract you. I can't again. Oh, what is going on? So we're going to Okay, All right, ready? Secure it. Well, the issue has attracted the attention of activists from across the country. The Brave New Films group made a documentary on the fact that uh, more people with mental illness are held in jails in the U.S. than in state hospitals. The prison system is ill-equipped to treat people with mental illness. Guards resort to abuse to force compliance. Medical care, including vital medication and therapy, are more often than not neglected. This lack of care encounters which defy our very sense of human decency. In the Kelly Coltrane case, a 27-year-old lady who had a seizure states that the hospital was across the street from the jail. Took an investigator two minutes to walk to the hospital. Two minutes to walk. Both deputies were disciplined, but Holland opted to retire early. The Mineral County Commission voted unanimously to buy Holland an additional year toward his service for a cost of $17,853. The buyout allowed Holland to retire with a higher annual pension and health care benefits. 
In reviewing the case for criminal charges, Rye, the Lyon County District Attorney, said he couldn't find evidence that the two jailers acted maliciously. Based on my review, they did not notice any signs warranting any medical intervention based on their training or experience. Let me, let me say that again. The lady is vomiting on the floor. But number one, she asked you to take her to the hospital. Exactly. Two minutes away. So why don't somebody explain to me, Mr. District Attorney, Mr. Rye, how you come to that conclusion? And how's your conclusion? I don't see any malicious intent. What about criminal negligence? What about the fact that you are responsible for the safety and well-being of every one of these inmates under your care and your supervision? How how does he get away with telling the public, oh, there was no malicious intent? You neglected to act when you saw another human being in distress under your care. How is there no criminal charges brought for that? Because the problem is society has painted a picture that these are animals. These people deserve whatever they get. So why don't we have an outcry? Because nobody cares about those behind the wall. That's why man remains silent. Communities remain silent because they think, well, they got it coming. This is a culture issue. This is a society issue. And that's why you have hundreds of advocates organizations crying out against cruel treatment of inmates and the public why because these are stories that are hidden from the public these are examples that the public never is privy to in a large group of of, in large numbers so if the communities don't know how can they become outraged when the prisons cover up this conduct when there is not a report on the news that Officers are being charged with murder. That, that makes local news. That makes national news. And when that's not done, the public is not even aware of this abuse. Which is why the voice of AJC Radio just calls will scream louder. And let the people know. Let citizens know, wait a minute. You think... This is some type of luxury hotel in prison? You think, well, they're getting treated fairly. They do get medical care and they get their meals. It's a joke. And we will expose that corruption. This is corruption. There's no other way to put it. I'm called a murderer if I take someone's life. But a CO, a correctional officer? He's given a higher pension to retire. He is rewarded for his criminal acts behind the wall. Reward him unanimously. Thank you for your job in killing a 27-year-old woman. Thank you, sir. How can we make your retirement better, killer? 
This is the message we send. Dennis, your thoughts? And, and AJC is doing just that. I mean, you have to make people aware. I mean, you got to educate. You got to make people understand that what they what they think is happening behind the walls is not what's happening. And uh, I tell you, it's just it, it, it's amazing to hear the stories of how people, uh, how, how citizens, because they are citizens, they're American citizens, uh, they're in jail and they're being treated like uh, anything but humans. And, and enough is enough. America has to cry out and has to say, we got to end this. And how do we end it? We end it by making sure we get it out there. Let people know what's going on behind the walls. Don't think that everything's okay. Don't think that everybody in prison deserves to be in prison. There's so many wrongfully convicted. There's so many exonerations. I mean, that alone should make people start thinking about what's happening in our prison system. Well, the bottom line is the guilty don't deserve this. Exactly. I could be guilty of a crime. I went, these men and women have gone before a judge and have been sentenced. And, and their sentence is not no yeah. health, no health care. You get no exactly. treatment. You get no, you get no care or concern from the BOP or state and local officials. That's not part of your sentence. Your sentence is to serve your time, and basically, there's, a, there's an expectation of that you're going to go home alive and well. And that's the responsibility of those facilities is to ensure that this individual faces their crime, gives their time. But goes home alive and well. That's in a perfect world. That's what you think. That that's the proper thing. That's what think you think the right thing is. This is foreign countries are not doing this. When we get on a soapbox and say, how could the rights of human beings be violated? In these foreign countries. America is guilty. A judge that sits on a bench and hands down a sentence to a mentally ill person. You are culpable in this problem. How do you sit on the bench and sentence a mentally ill patient to prison? How you doing? Well, I mean, it's just an absence of conscience, Luan. It really is. It, we, we talk about the compassion. We talk about, you know, the humanity and everything. It's just there, there is, there's no conscience. They don't care. Like we pointed out here time and time again, the, the COs, the judges, the, the wardens, like they truly, there is no humanity when it comes to those that are behind the wall. They're a number on a spreadsheet um, that's attached to a budget. That's essentially what it is. We, we have no care for our, our fellow citizens that are behind the wall. And we, as AJC and all the connections that we have out there that we've been, you know, trying to provide a platform for, we need to just continue and multiply our efforts so that, you know, the local governments, the state governments, the federal governments, like they're not going to get a moment's rest from hearing from us until something is done. The trips that are made, you know, to to Capitol Hill, D.C., and all them by this organization are, are just keeping the ball rolling for 
you know, our brothers and sisters that can't speak out for themselves, those that do have mental illnesses, when we have 10 times the amount of people with mental illnesses in the BOP and the DOJ, DOC, that are actually in facilities that are made for them. That's a, a horrific statistic to know, but it's fact. It's fact that these people aren't getting the care they need. They're not even getting sent to the right institution to get the care they need. And instead, like you say time and time again, they're being used to fill and stack body bags and line somebody's budget or somebody's pocket. That's all that's going on. And it deserves oversight. Oversight should be looking into investigating the judiciary member, excuse me, the judiciary committee of Congress and the Senate must call hearings. Bring these families before Congress, before the Senate, and say, look, my loved one was dragged to death through a prison hall. Miss Coltrane was murdered in a cell and make them public hearings where the public can sit in front of their... They, they're, they're watching everything else right now going on in hearings. Mm-hmm. Call a hearing... Call BOP accountable and charge them with crimes for failing to act. And is there even a process? Like, for instance, when there's an officer-involved shooting, that officer is given a desk job, or from what I understand, to make sure – let's review the shooting. Well, in, in, in a jail or a prison, well, what happens? These guys don't miss work. No. They, 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 someone dies, he goes right back on the job. Ready to kill the next person. That's the bottom And it's like, so you, you're, te- you're rewarding this neglect of, hey, you don't have to care. Everything's going to be taken care of for you, and you're going to have your job still. So what's the incentive of trying to save a life? None. Because there's no penalty. William, your thoughts? I agree 100% with it. I think Samson brought up a point, and the bottom line is it does roll down to money. You know, they've got a contract to fill those beds. That bed is filled. I don't want to spend any more money on it. This is what's coming. So I want a profit. I don't want any losses. And I don't want to pay for care for this person. I don't want to pay for medicine and supplies to be you know, available for this person. I'm not, I'm not doing – I'm doing the bare amount. Yes, no, absolutely right. Ladies and gentlemen, this has been a humdinger here. Our voice will not remain silent. We will call out every level of corruption at every point we find it as advocates. America, you need to do the same. Because until it, the next person may be your loved one that's killed. Because nobody decided to speak out. We'll continue the series Collateral Damage of Injustice next week. Until next time, America, the very special thanks to the mayor, to those that took time out of their schedule tonight to join us and to have a conversation on this topic. Debbie from FAM, we appreciate you. Mr. Naru, we appreciate you, Mayor. Until next time, America, fight for justice. Good night. It's unacceptable, and we want to make our voices heard. Stephen Corset. She is a person just like me who probably had goals and aspirations. And Kari Lucas. The pair didn't know Joyce Cornell, but when they recently heard what happened to the 50-year-old... There's a time where you have to finally say, I'm drawing the line here and I won't stand for this anymore. They wanted to do something. 
This story starts here. Last July, at Rover St. Francis, Cornell was being treated for a stomach illness. The next day at the hospital, she was arrested on a warrant for shoplifting after being medically discharged and taken to the Charleston County Jail. 27 hours later, though, she was dead. Four documents filed this week allege Cornell vomited through the night. The autopsy report shows she died from gastroenteritis, but the lawyer's expert says, quote, Miss Cornell died because she was deprived of water. She was too sick to tolerate the dehydration. According to the Sheriff's Department, staff saw her at 2.12 p.m. for a medical check. She was found unresponsive three hours later. It's bigger than just this incident. Back with Corson and Lucas, they're planning a peaceful march for Friday here at Marion Square. They hope to educate people on Cornell's story and in turn create change. They need to have a better vetting of the medical staff there, a better vetting of the officers who are supposed to be taking care of citizens. Police are meant to protect, and what have they done for Joyce? What have they done for Joyce? Thank you. 